listening to New England Public Media News. I'm Adam Frenier, and this is the shortlist NEPM's Week in Review. Joining us today on the line, longtime journalist and author Brooke Hauser. Brooke, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Adam. And making his shortlist debut, someone who is no stranger to public media airwaves, John Dankowski with the Connecticut Mirror. John, thanks for being with us as well. Anytime, Adam. Tuesday marked 10 years since a devastating tornado ripped through a swath of western Massachusetts. Three people were killed, 200 were injured, and it caused more than $200 million in damage. Springfield attorney Laura Marino, whose office was damaged by the storm, says in the aftermath, people of the city pulled together. I just feel like the people in Springfield are pretty resilient. They're tough, and I feel like people just picked up and kept it pushing. Brooke, as we look back, how would you say the impacted communities from Westfield to Brimfield have recovered over the last decade? I'm from Miami originally, so I'm very familiar with hurricanes, but less familiar with tornadoes. Um, I was interested to learn that we get, you know, in the state, one to two tornadoes a year on average. And and from Nancy Cohen's reporting that the highly destructive ones are rare. Personally, what I find scary about them is the unpredictability you really never know when the next one will hit and, and or where it will hit until about a half hour before it happens. So um, that was news to me. It was, it was interesting to learn. John, as Brooke points out, we do get tornadoes from time to time. Usually the big ones, though, are pretty rare for our part of the world. What lessons may have the region learned from 2011? Well, I remember that day, too, and I remember thinking that the, the tornadoes that we were seeing up and down the Connecticut River Valley were, were very scary. We didn't know where, where they touched down. I think it really came home to me the first time I drove through downtown Springfield and saw what had happened. I'd never been to a city, a, a, a fairly large size American city, that had actually had a tornado touchdown and ripped the heart out of it. And so I think one of the things that, that I take away from that is these are going to happen every once in a while, but we do need to be ready for them. I think, Adam, one of the things that's most fascinating is just how it transformed the city of Springfield. I mean, what happened because of the tornado, nobody wanted to see happen, but things had happened in development in Springfield that never would have happened if that tornado hadn't touched down there. Also this week, the Springfield Catholic Diocese, as promised, released an expanded list of clergy and other employees credibly accused of sexual abuse of a minor. Bishop William Byrne says 40 new names are added, tripling the size of the list. It now includes diocesan clergy, even if they were deceased at the time that the allegation came forward, religious order members, and clergy from other dioceses, and lay employees. Byrne says the expanded list does not include any new allegations, just newly public ones. Brooke, the Springfield Diocese took a step towards transparency. Some, including Worcester, however, don't have a public list at all. How important is this? It's so important. And I think it's notable that these are, you know, 40 new names, as you said, but not new allegations. Some of them have, you know, taken years and years to come to light. Uh, and the question is, why did it take so long to to not only bring these allegations into the light of day, but to review them seriously? This is a story that affects the whole region. And what's chilling about it, you know, one of the things is knowing that the list, while it's growing, and as you said, it has tripled, is knowing that it could still be incomplete. You know, the diocese has encouraged anyone who's been the victim of sexual abuse by clergy or any personnel of the diocese to report it directly to law enforcement. So um, I think this is a story we're all going to be paying close attention to for a while. 
One name on the list, Robert Hosmer Jr., an emeritus faculty member at Smith College. He's accused of sexually abusing a minor while teaching at Holyoke Catholic High School. The Daily Hampshire Gazette reports the college admitted it knew about the allegations two decades ago, but took no action. John, the college says back then it received legal advice not to follow up on the claim, which the current president called irresponsible. But still, even in 2001, how could they let this go? Well, I think, Adam, what we've seen is a lot of people letting a lot of things go. I mean, remember just a couple of years ago, uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut released a very similar list to what we're seeing here. 71 priests abused about 300 victims over the course of decades. They paid out $56 million to uh, settle abuse claims. It seems as though that would settle things. But what happened? Edward Egan, who was the bishop at the time in Bridgeport, uh, he was, according to this report, profoundly unsympathetic and openly inflammatory toward people who bring accusations. And he was elevated within the Catholic Church to lead the Archdiocese of New York. The fact is, is that we see over and over again things not being done at almost any level, even with the transparency that is so important here. Moving along, in Massachusetts, it's been nearly a week since most COVID-19 restrictions were lifted. In most cases, people who are vaccinated don't have to wear a mask anymore if they choose. But many still are. Massachusetts gaming officials say that about half of casino patrons still are donning masks, and there's also some businesses asking people to continue wearing them. Brooke, we're all on the honor system here when it comes to whether or not we should be wearing masks based on vaccination. Is this actually going to work? Honestly, I'm, I'm still navigating it myself. I've come to think of it as, you know, how we have motor memory. I think of this as mask memory. Like it's, it's hard to take it off for a lot of people. It's psychological. Um, the way I've been dealing with personally is if I go into a store or a restaurant or some other business, I often ask the workers if they're comfortable with me taking off my mask. And if they say yes, even if they're wearing their own, I'll take it off. Still, if I'm there with my young children who are too young to be vaccinated, I'll often wear my mask um, to set an example for them. It's it's confusing right now. Um, I'm also figuring it out, but, you know, we'll, we'll get there. And John, finally, do you think some people, to Brooks Point, regardless of COVID-19, are still just going to keep wearing their masks going forward? I had something happen to me just the other day for the first time. Uh, there were two custodial workers in a building that I was in who were wearing masks. Everyone else in the building was unmasked, and they apologized to me for wearing masks because they said, wait, I didn't want to alarm you. We're fine. It's just out of an abundance of caution. So what is happening is there are some employers, even in settings in which you're not supposed to wear masks, that are asking some employees to wear masks. In some cases, people just aren't comfortable. So there is an awful lot of mixing in every single place. So I don't think, Adam, right now we know necessarily what to do. All I can say is things do feel a lot more maskless than they even did two weeks ago. And we wrap up this week in Connecticut, where the Democratic leadership of the state's House has admonished some members for drinking on the job. Due to COVID-19 restrictions, many lawmakers are in their offices during legislative sessions, and that's apparently led to incidents of drunkenness. John, any surprise the Democratic leadership decided to go public about this? What I think is interesting, Adam, is that, you know, remember a couple of years ago, Rhode Island lawmakers actually made national news because of this, because of reports of how much drinking was going on at the state house. Almost everybody that I know who spends time at the Connecticut state capitol said, that's nothing. That happens all the time. And it's usually around the end of legislative session. So while I think lawmakers who say it's because of COVID probably have a point, things have definitely changed. There's always been at the end of session, 
a little bit too much heavy drinking. Almost every reporter will tell you that. And it's something that finally Democratic lawmakers have stepped forward to address. Brooke, I'll give you the last word. I just would think that drinking and lawmaking don't really pair well. But I wanted to mention that I read an article about this um, also in the Associated Press and appreciated this line. Um, It talked about how the Connecticut Speaker of the House, Matt Ritter, also noted it's not just Democrats who've been drinking excessively. This is a problem on both sides of the aisle. So I just wanted to point that out. It's a bipartisan (laughs) problem. Exactly. Exactly. All right, longtime journalist and author Brooke Hauser and John Dankowski with the Connecticut Mirror. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. And thank you for listening to The Shortlist and EPM's Week in Review. You can catch us at any time, wherever you get your podcasts, or at nepm.org slash podcast hub. I'm Adam Frenier, and this is New England Public Media. Mm-hmm.